Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone, and happy Friday here on the 29th of January on our final day of this week in Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Dr. Peter Capstan filling in one more day, and Carmen will be back in the host chair. I know she's had a great week off. We've texted back and forth a bit, and it's just fun to give her a week of space and and breath, and she will uh, certainly be ready to be back in the saddle on Monday morning. Delighted to be with all of you for this entire week and as well Today and Paul Perot, it's been so fun to be in studio with you, just sort of sharing the fellowship of the saints, as it were, with you and our listeners all around the listening area that really comprises a lot of, of terrestrial stations in the Midwest, but increasingly through the apps and MyFaithRadio.com around our country and even globally in some ways. It's globally, been really a delight. I, mean, I love it when we're getting emails or whatever, you know, when we do book giveaways, people entering in from... Places we don't have radio stations, yeah. Nashville, Texas, uh, Arizona. It, it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. And uh, in the last half of the last hour of this show, we'll have another book giveaway. We'll be joined by Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Daryl Strawberry. So you want to stay. so excited about this, folks. I just... really am. You know, I was a baseball nerd growing up. I know that Matt Hawkins as well, our first guest coming up in just a couple minutes. He uh, he literally gasped out loud, I believe, when I told him off air just a minute ago. And, and Daryl has quite the story of redemption and hope. And so you'll definitely want to stay tuned for that as well. And, and, Paul, I know one of Car- Carmen's greatest and very understandable fears was that we were going to break the show this week. And I, and I think our closest moment may have been when I couldn't pronounce the word emolument. And, and you unceremoniously buzzed me in that moment. I, w- I would have thought you would have offered grace, but you just came with the hammer of the law and truth in that moment. But but I've learned some words this week. That was a helpful word to learn. Uh, emolument. I, yep. I still don't know what it means, but I remember being able to say it. Uh, which was exciting. I think yesterday was maybe one of my favorite moments of the show because when Dr. Timothy Tennant came on the air, he gave a phrase, cultural catechesis, that Mm -hmm. I've been using since then in the last 24 hours. I used it in my classes yesterday as well. This idea, catechesis is the idea that we are being taught sort of systematically a way of life that is seen as as good or right, and Mm -hmm. and our culture is constantly doing that. And so we've been reflecting on cultural catechesis quite a bit. Okay, well, okay, now use it in a sentence properly... Let's see. Uh, most of us knowingly and unknowingly are being culturally catechized by the things that we watch and what comes through our phone on a daily basis. How do you like that? I'll go with that. That's pretty I'll solid. That, that, that's solid. Well, that's and, solid. and I think it's the unknowingly part, right? We just, we don't. I, that's I, true. I'm, I'm very compelled by the words of uh, the recently passed theologian Dallas Willard, who said these words. He said, it's not a question of whether we are going to be formed. The question is, by what will we be formed? And so right. when the biblical text talks about the idea that you are the potter, God, I am the clay, shape me and mold me, this is what I pray. Mm-hmm. It's an acknowledgement that uh, as clay, we are going to be shaped in some kind of form. The question is, who's, who are our potters? Exactly. And we have a number of potters in our culture that will want to shape us. And the question is, will we be shaped by the hands of the master? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Bottom line, you just said it. You just said you hit it right there. Yeah, so. and so that's the cultural catechesis. So we hope as we bring uh, this first hour of the show to you that it feels like a catechesis in Jesus. We really do want to shine the light of our good shepherd and the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and sort of take a breath from all of what the culture may be yelling into us day in and day out. And we'll do that with Matthew Hawkins up next as our first guest on Mornings Without Carmen. Love that slow jazz, Matt. Uh, delight to talk to you as well this Absolutely. morning. You, of course, are the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, public theologian. Join us here on this program uh, quite often to just talk about some of the intersection uh, of theology and practical theology along with some of the political and social economic headlines of the day. So great to talk to you again. Thanks, Peter. Always glad to be, visit with you. Yeah, uh, I believe even though Carmen's the right way, we you know we we miss her, of course. But uh, 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 you're good too. Well, I appreciate that, man. <laughs> that, that is very gracious of you. Paul is rolling his eyes as he's wont to do in studio when any, any compliment comes in like that, and, and you're, not you're cer- certainly better than Paul. Don't, 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 don't feed the beast, will you? <laughs> That's great. Uh, it is great. I'm to just hear jealous you. about the Daryl. I'm just je- jealous about the Daryl Strawberry interview. That'll but, be fantastic. Yeah, I think I think your reaction is that you're one degree removed. You're on the same show, and you're pretty excited about that. Because he like I'm for me he was he was the, he was a baseball hero for sure he had quite the Absolutely. life of, of a fall from grace and a redemption and yeah. hope and it's a pretty exciting story. Yeah, I, I, I was remembering having his rookie card uh, in the eighties. Uh, that was Strawberry was definitely definitely one of the players from my generation that we as kids just uh, uh, looked at as a hero. It was pretty remarkable. He really was, indeed. So be, that'll be a good conversation again. Uh, just love that the the redemption part of that. But we got you and I have a yeah. lot to cover here this morning of some important headlines. And I know you've been involved in some of these ethics and religious liberty conversations in Washington D.C. over the years. And and we see that President Biden has come through with a series of executive orders through your lens, Matt. How are you reading what it is that you're seeing at this point? Sure. Uh, the short of it of the lens is it's predictable. Uh, we, yeah, uh, yeah. We see these um, executive orders, uh, particularly within the first few weeks of a new administration. Uh, that's what happens. Uh, so there are uh, a lot of things that presidents can do through executive orders. Again, it's just a it's an order of a president to executive branch a- agencies. Uh, so to the extent that a president can act unilaterally without without an act of Congress. Um, presidents tend to do that. And in the modern era, um, it's pretty predictable. Um, often the early ones, what you see um, in in early executive orders is they're kind of basically campaign promises um, that are being delivered. It's kind of coalition building, right? So it's, you know, what, thank you for getting me here into this office. And here's the baseline stuff that I promised to do for you. And I'm going to do it as quickly as possible, right? So there's a, there's that kind of um, uh, coalition building. Uh, thank you. Thank your, you know, grassroots or thank your core supporters um, kind of motive in doing a lot of this. Um, and so you see presidents do this. Trump did it. Um, Obama did it. Um, and, and Bush did it and Clinton did it. So <laughs> you go yeah. way back. Uh, it's more pretty, pretty common in, in this modern era. Um, and the volume or the number of executive orders isn't necessarily what we're looking at, um, but the content of the executive orders kind of matters. Uh, and uh, so you see on executive orders like, you know, like with Biden, they, they touch on a bunch of uh, social 
conservative versus progressive issues um, like abortion policy, like uh, immigration, um, like uh, transgender uh, LGBT related things. And uh, so predictable is mainly the name of the game. Uh, and then there's kind of a mixed bag with the Biden administration from from my perspective. And uh, among the, that mixed bag, what would you say would have potentially the most impact or at least some measure of impact on the day to day life of us as believers or in families in our country, maybe the school system? Where do you see that it, it's going to be maybe more than just a political gesture to the base, but something that is truly going to impact how we walk in this world? Yeah, I think the kind of the main thing um, is that the main thing that has potential to um, mess with the daily lives of Americans um, and people who are raising raising children and that kind of thing is kind of the uh, the shift on um, some of the again the sexual sexuality content yeah. uh, like transgenderism and that kind of stuff and the non you know non discrimination stuff with respect to what uh, we call soji sexual orientation gender identity issues including transgenderism and that kind of thing um, and they're you know Biden is rolling back um, restrictions that the Trump administration had put in place, uh, both in um, the military and in um, and in kind of school system, uh, federal uh, federal school system. So um, that's the kind of thing that we'll see uh, most likely to change. But again, I want to encourage people. American politics is a long game, and uh, we've already seen at least at the Ohio State House, and uh, there are conservatives who are already uh, implementing. Uh, state level policy uh, or introducing bills that would uh, confront the federal regulations on this. So, Mm. um, you know, I'd say this is, you know, it's discouraging, it's predictable. um, But uh, we we also have a lot of great people uh, at the state level um, and still in the federal orbit of places um, and uh, particularly in the um, in the law practice uh, that aren't going to let this uh, these kinds of policies um, stand Uh, with respect to life um, and the pro-life movement. uh, The the always the always flipping executive order is on what's called the Mexico City city policy Uh, has more to do uh, or it has a lot to do with a lot more than Mexico City, but that's kind of the the short lingo for it. Basically, allows federal aid to go to organizations who conduct or refer uh, abortions uh, outside the borders of the United States, mm. uh, which is pretty tragic. Um, we, uh, as Americans, to the extent that we uh, support you know federal aid, American dollars, American taxpayer dollars, uh, to aid people who are um, with less uh, outside the U.S. Um, we want those to not go to abortion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, abortion practices. And that's kind of a, a baseline uh, requirement for uh, you know, pro-life presidents. And it's also a pro- it's baseline requirement for um, pro-choice presidents and uh, presidents who, like Biden, are supported by uh, the abortion industry. Um, and given the revelations now m- recently and the, the declaration of genocide happening in China, uh, this is an era where we ought to be even more scrutinized, uh, even way give every, even more scrutiny mm-hmm. uh, to uh, countries and organizations and governments where American tax dollars flow. Uh, we ought to heighten the scrutiny, uh, not not lower the bar here. Uh, so that's one. Those are a couple. You know, that's those are a couple of the um, more disturbing ones. On on the good side for the Biden administration. Um, 
we do see some what we believe to be what I believe to be encouraging um, developments on the immigration front. Um, the uh, the DACA program, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> um, it's it's just a short lingo for a federal policy put in place by the Obama administration to basically say, look, um, people who are here illegally and don't you know they're undocumented, they're uh, illegal aliens, legally speaking. Um, if you arrived here because you were a minor at the time, you came over because your parents brought you, that means you are a person who did not, you're here illegally, but your legal status is not due to uh, you um, taking the burden, uh, legal legal burden and frankly moral burden of <laughs> breaching a federal border, right? And so right. we're saying that's your, if that's your status, if you arrived here as a child, um, then we ought to, we ought to make some accommodations for you, uh, with respect to your legal status. Um, that includes things like, you know, education and, or access to education and driver's license and, um, you know, basically being able to be out of the shadows, right. Which is a really important thing for local law enforcement, um, to have people who are, are not in the shadows. And a lot of those folks are, you know, adults and they, a lot of them, uh, I've heard the stories you probably too have, Peter, uh, you probably have too, that, you know, a lot of these kids, they don't discover that they're, uh, uh, undocumented until they're 16 years of age right. and go to apply for a driver's license and the parents are like, we have to have a conversation. Yeah. Um, so now we, uh, when I was at ERLC, we opposed Obama's policy on this, not on content, but we thought he should have gone through Congress. Um, and so there was a, we affirmed the motive and the content of the policy, but we just thought uh, procedurally it should be a congressional decision. Um, Trump's administration tried to roll that back and was challenged at the court because, uh, the court believed that Trump didn't, uh, the Trump administration didn't follow a proper procedure, and uh, so it was kept in place. And then Biden has now just rescinded this. Um, we think that's a good thing. Again, on the content, we really wish, um, I really wish that Congress would lead on this and get this thing done uh, more permanently. So that's one positive thing that we're seeing. Yeah, it's super helpful to sort through those things that are politically motivated and those things that really seem to be, to, to have a bit of a moral foundation underneath them. And clearly the DACA program had uh, support from both sides of the aisle and, and a widespread basis for quite some time. So I appreciate you walking us through that. Let's take a short break. When we come back, uh, Matthew, let's switch the conversation. I'm curious about your thoughts on the religious composition of the incoming Congress, as well as what we see in this really interesting psalm 139 project. So take a short break and more to come with Matt Hawkins next. About 21 minutes after the top of the hour here on the 29th of January. Happy Friday again, everybody, on Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today, and we're chatting with public theologian Matthew Hawkins about a number of the events coming out of Washington, D.C. Pretty in interesting to see the religious composition of the incoming yeah. Congress here, Matt. What are you noticing on that? Yeah, um, it's one of those things where, so we're talking about, when we talk about um, the composition of Congress, talking about 535 members of Congress uh, and representative of, the, of the, uh, the population of 300, you know, 300 million people um, in the U.S. And we, uh, you want to see, you know, it's curious to see if the representation, religiously speaking, uh, is, you know, roughly uh, that of the U.S. population. And um it doesn't appear, according to a new research uh, from the Pew Research uh, Center, uh, who's been tracking that since uh, for about five or six uh, congressional gatherings now, uh, so going back about a decade or so. Um, there's not a dramatic shift, 
um, broadly speaking, of the religious makeup of Congress. Um, but what you do see, uh, similar to trends in uh, the U.S. population, people who are still identifying as Christian broadly, but less of them are identifying as a particular expression of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and so that's an inter- kind of an interesting trend. And you... Um, you do, uh, and again, so that that kind of tracks with what we see in the culture, right? Um, we we see a decrease in association when people are filling out religious surveys. Anyway, we see a decrease in affiliation with um, what pe- people tend to refer to as you know traditional or institutional religions. Um, and uh, not only are they maybe uh, watering down their identification of a particular, <laughs> going from say Baptist or Lutheran to just identifying as Christian, uh, a lot of people are clicking the none. Uh, we've seen the quote-unquote the rise of the nuns, yes. N-O-N-E-S, uh, which is people who are uh, opting in religious surveys to click uh, that there there's no affiliation. Um, now, one thing I always like to caution people about is uh, particularly atheist um, lobbyists, uh, so people who are you know often not always but often challenge us, particularly on domestic religious freedom issues, um, and. Uh, they, they like they like to kind of claim the nuns for themselves to make the population of atheists look uh, more impressive, um, which is an interesting strategy and often effective, um, but it's also uh, also exaggerative, right? Um, now a lot of people who are clicking the nun button they may in fact be agnostic, uh, maybe you know they're atheists, but they're not exactly checking the atheist box, right? Uh, yeah. Which is typically on those kinds of surveys. So they're they're undefined, and so it kind of leaves when people when advocacy groups are using you know trying to look at their numbers and try to justify uh, how much the population they represent. The nuns are kind of a really squishy data point uh, mm. that people can kind of try to define for themselves, and that tends to happen on the secular left. Uh, we have to say, wait, wait, wait. These people are not saying that they believe there's no God. It's just they're they're not seeing their particular expression of religion listed on the survey that's in, in front of them. Um, so we have to be cautious and uh, kind of humble about what kind of conclusions we draw about that really undefined group. Um, we also do see that uh, Jewish Jewish members of the Congress make up more of uh, Congress than the general population, 6% of uh, congressional members versus 2% of the population. Um, and so that that's an interesting data point. Um, so yeah, I, I was, it's always curious when I was so... I worked for the Southern Baptist on Capitol Hill for eight years, and what was always interesting is the religious affiliation that were listed for uh, members of Congress. I guess it's a historic thing. You know, you could you find it on any of their Wikipedia pages, uh, maybe on their on their office's website, um, but. When you get to know Capitol Hill offices, Peter, um, you really start to figure out which of those who list Christian or some denomination of Christian have kind of a lingo uh, that you you and I would recognize um, when we have these conversations and we have these conversations with Carmen as far as applying our our Christian walk to the public sphere, right? Mm, Um, So there are people who – there's a difference. You start to detect a difference between kind of a general um, civic – religion friendly kind of Christianity, right? Um, versus someone who's like, no, really, I, I'm a believer and I'm a member of a local church and that's important to me. And, uh, you know, everything I see up here on the Capitol Hill and governing as to the best of my abilities, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm grading through a Christian worldview and trying to apply the Bible 
um, in my daily work, right? There's a difference between those two types of quote unquote Christian uh, members of Congress. Um, and sadly, I think you, the, those who we would recognize and would speak in the kind of same kind of lingo that we would about um, uh, the Bible and, and uh, politics, they are far less uh, than would be recognized on this kind of survey. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a disappointment. That doesn't mean to say they're not, you know, all those folks aren't, aren't believers. I'm not making a judge on a judgment on their uh, salvation um, or the, you know, their, their, you know, their uh, intentions of what to do on Capitol Hill. I'm just saying there's a there's a distinct difference between uh, those who are affiliated with some kind of uh, church denomination and those who like are really really wear it on their sleeve, so to speak. And, and when I say that in the best way, yeah, I'm not talking I'm not talking about people who are trying to you know uh, want to build a theocracy and and want you know what Christianity to rule the government. That's a different thing. Right. Uh, there's just a difference between kind of the uh, kind of a just an American flavored civil religion that's Christianity friendly versus someone who's really um, uh, applying their faith uh, in, a, in a pretty intentional, thoughtful way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really well said in terms of the difference between uh, maybe somebody who is a, a cultural Christian and somebody who is following Jesus. They're just, there's a, there's a native part of, of a language when you're kind of an insider within a religious community like that, that just begins to inhabit uh, who you are and plays itself out over your social body in ways that maybe being more of an outside, but kind of a nod to doesn't take shape. So really interesting stuff, man. I really appreciate just that the insight that you bring, the wisdom from your years on Capitol Hill and uh, great to catch up a little bit. Have a great rest of the morning. Thanks, Peter. And give Daryl Strawberry my best for sure. <laughs> I absolutely will. We'll take a short <laughs> break here and come back for some bottom of the hour news and preview what's coming up next here with Gary Stratton. So, Paul, I don't know about you, but I don't often use snail mail anymore in terms of getting stamps, putting stamps in an envelope and sticking it in the mailbox or putting the flag up on, on the mailbox, maybe with the bottom of the driveway here. But but this may motivate me to do so more so because it says that the United States Postal Service has announced a new collection of stamps featuring different droids from the Star Wars universe, C-3PO, R2-D2, newer droids as well, like BB-8 and D-0. I'm excited for these stamps, i got to tell you. That's kind of cool. Actually, okay, that got me inspired because... You're right. We don't send a lot of letters, but at Christmas time we do. So it's almost like, okay, get a bunch of these now, pocket them, right, and have them ready for when we send out Christmas cards this year. Yeah, they might be able to go across international matters, maybe even outside of uh, into the, the solar it, system somewhere, maybe right? Maybe to a I galaxy just, far, far away. <laughs> Indeed, I do love oh, the snail boy. mail. There's nothing like getting a handwritten note from somebody, right? The personalization of that, we feel connected in those places. So I encourage you to maybe take some time this weekend and write a loved one, a friend, a colleague, a, a handwritten note, pop it in the mail, old school, for a bit of encouragement with one another. Up next, Dr. Gary Stratton, he and I are going to talk about some of the words of Jesus that maybe we don't think about all too clearly on a day-to-day basis, but might have the possibility of upending our lives as we walk out at Believers in this world. At Heartlight, our residential counseling center for troubled teens, one of my jobs is to repair the horse fences. I need to ensure that the boundaries are strong. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. These sensitive and sometimes stubborn creatures need to know where they can go and where they can't. If a horse breaks any part of the fence, I fix it. When they constantly push on the fence, I reinforce it. Personal boundaries are like good fences. They offer protection and help define what's good. 
Establishing and constantly reinforcing strong boundaries with your teen will ensure that even if they push their limits, they won't get lost or tread into unknown and dangerous territory. Keep building and protecting those fences. Someday, your kids will thank you. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. I don't know, Dr. Gary Stratton, did you see that one coming? Musical wizard Paul Perot took your walk-up music and found a bagpipe version of it. you, you got to be almost dancing at your Skype mic right now, aren't you? <laughs> I, I was like, "Where? what is that? That's a great cover. <laughs> right? I mean, this is what Red I'll send to you. Red Hot Chili Pipers. The Red Hot Chili Pipers. He, he, as Red. usual... <laughs> Paul has crushed the musical choices this morning. We love it. We love it. Well, hey, man, it's great to hear your voice again. Uh, you are the dean, of course, of Johnson University, and you've worked in so, in so many different places over the years, including Hollywood with scriptwriters at different institutions around our country, just helping us think critically about the intersection of what's going on in our world around us, the things that impact us day to day in light of our faith and how we can walk out as a, a light shiners in, in the midst of all of this. So great to hear your voice again, Gary. Oh, it's great to hear yours, Peter. So you and I were chatting last night over text a bit again and, and thinking about uh, something that has been on my mind as well lately over these last six to nine months or so. And and that is, do we take the words and the actions of Jesus seriously? If, if we're disciples of Jesus, Gary, I think both you and I would describe part of that process is that we grow in our actual character. We grow in the way we think about the world. We grow in, in the sorts of power and authority available in the kingdom as well related to that. This is what it means to grow into Christ-likeness, but sometimes it seems we're getting discipled by a lot of other voices around us besides the actual words of Jesus, which, if we took them seriously, might be a little revolutionary both for our lives and for the people around us. No, it is amazing how easy it is for us to say we follow Jesus and then don't do what he teaches. As a matter of fact, he warned us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, if you hear these teachings, but you don't put them into practice, your life is going to crash. I mean, that's exactly what he says. And you just kind of look at what happens in the church in America today. Said, yeah, that's us. We we know these teachings, but we do not put them into practice. And things are kind of crashing. Yeah, they are indeed. I, I just and I think it's an invitation in the midst of that to get sort of through the fog of it all and try to recapture what it was that he said and did. If we're going to claim to be Christ followers, not cultural Christ followers, but actual Jesus followers, it, it might be a, a different way of life. But it's also a life where there really is authentic peace and hope and, and joy and love and shalom and all of these kinds of things. So I invited you last night to think about maybe some of the teachings of Jesus or, or some of the actions of Jesus that he did that would potentially make us go, huh, I need to think about that a little bit. You have one that you've come up with? Well, I mean, the most obvious one in the current climate is when he talks about, you know, you've heard you said you shouldn't murder, but I say, uh, you know, you really shouldn't be angry at your brother or sister, and that, that'll that put you subject to judgment, or you shouldn't be saying to your brother or sister, racha, which is just a like cursing them, or saying they're a fool, uh, or you're in big trouble, and yet you just look at the discourse in our culture right now. You don't have to go to social media, news, anything. Everybody's just calling each other, cursing each other, and calling each other fools, and full of anger. And that anger, as we cultivate it, turns into hatred. Uh, and I mean, I got really good 
Christian people in my life that I, I talk to them, and they really have just pure, like, murderous hatred towards certain people. And I just, this, something's wrong. And how do, I mean, how do we get there, Gary? What is it that we cultivate in our lives that, that maybe, or what is cultivated in our lives by sort of the spirit of the age around us that does tend to lead us down this pathway of anger and murder? I'm sure there's a number of different kinds of factors involved, but as you sort of observe the situation around us, what do you think is cultivating this kind of interior world of hatred so often? You know, sometimes I think it's really simple, and that is, you know, hatred is simply a human emotion when our goal is blocked. Somebody cuts you off in the parking lot <laughs> or trying to get to the uh, through the checkout line. You know, we just naturally get anger and angry, and then anger isn't necessarily bad. If I get angry at injustice or different things, I mean, it's not like it's all bad. But when I start to cultivate that anger, when it starts to become self-centered, it begins to control me and take me over. Man, it's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And I think sometimes the way we even talk about Christian worldview, we're kind of talking, we talk about it in a very defensive way. And when someone doesn't have it, they're blocking our goal. So we automatically respond with anger. And then when we don't respond in a Christian, a Christ-like way, we're just falling right into the enemy's strategy. Mm. Gary, talking about cultivating some of that anger like that, I, I can neither confirm nor deny that if I'm driving in the left lane on the freeway and somebody is driving, you know, dare I say, the speed limit <laughs> in the left lane, that maybe <laughs> maybe I might get a wee bit frustrated from time to time. Do you have an invitation for me as, you know, when, when something gets triggered from an anger standpoint of some things in practice, as I can say, hang on just a minute here, maybe I don't want to walk down that path. But what can I do, Gary? Help us out. Well, it makes me think of George Carlin's line, uh, anybody that's going faster than me is a maniac, and anybody that's going slower than me is an idiot. So, <laughs> right, right. So, that, I mean, yeah. But, I mean, living—Jesus seems to model for us the sense of living from a centered place, living from a place of prayer, living from a place of, of cultivating a deep and daily and moment-by-moment relationship with His Heavenly Father, where the life of God, the life of the Spirit is flowing in and through us. That doesn't mean we don't— fall into that default mode of that initial, oh, I'm so mad. But it means that second, is that second response has been cultivated to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not the path I want to go down. Do I need to pray for that person? Do I need to pray for myself? Uh, taking that second thought to get out of what uh, psychologists call fast thinking, we just automatically responses and get into more thoughtful, reflective responses or slow thinking. Is it possible, Gary, then in the midst of that to move from more of a default of anger into a default that reacts in a different kind of way? Because I think the, the way we experience the world before we even think about how we're experiencing the world reveals much about the character formation that's going on in our heart. And so, again, the idea I react before I even think about reacting, before I think about how I can put a, a lid on that reaction, my interior world is reacting in some way. It seems to me that when Jesus is saying things like, don't become angry in these ways or don't sin in these ways, that um, he's inviting us to just even see a reshaping of the way we react to the world around us, which requires a different way of seeing the world around us. It, am I off base in thinking about this, that there's more to the Christian life than just not acting a certain way? It really is about who we're becoming from the inside out. Yeah, I think you know, if you just look subtly at the rabbinic approach to teaching and the way Jesus takes that and fulfills that and makes it deeper, it's it's about becoming a type of person that can do the right thing in the moment. That none of us are capable uh, in our own uh, to just do the right thing automatically every time things come along. Uh, and just trying to make yourself do that is kind of like, you know, a freshman in front of the mirror trying to grow a beard or something. I mean, it just it, it's it's 
there's this natural process, what you cultivate, what you grow, what you plow, what you plant, that's what's going to come up at those key moments. Uh, so it, you have to do the whole package. It's not just trying to live Jesus' ethic. It's also trying to live Jesus' lifestyle of one of prayer, of deep community, uh, of connections with one another, of, uh, I like the, the idea of practicing situation. I know in these situations, my default mode goes in the wrong direction. So I literally stop and think and practice and pray about the next time in that situation, could you bring these things to mind? Lord, here, what are some different ways I could respond? And we can begin to tell our brain, uh, this is how we're going to respond. Uh, and you literally, the same way that a football team can practice and be ready for a big game, the way, you know, Malcolm Butler made that interception because they practiced that exact play uh, mm. that won the Super Bowl for the uh, for the Patriots that one time. He knew exactly what was going to happen and he was ready for it, that we can do that. We know what our weaknesses are. We could practice being ready for them. I love that invitation to practice, like you said, Gary. And, and as we practice, it's not just even our own human agency in the midst of the practice. Jesus does promise that his spirit dwells in us and through us and can begin to truly change that. But you and I probably are both familiar with the term of, of apprentice in God's kingdom as, yes. as another way or a synonym for a disciple. And I, and I love that idea of the apprentice, right? Where if I wanted to become a blacksmith, and I, and I don't even know what a blacksmith does for sure, but let's say, <laughs> I, let's say I get an anvil off of Etsy or something along those lines, and I want to bang out a sword akin to Aragorn and Lord of the Rings. I'm not just going to be able to bang that thing out within 15 minutes in a YouTube video. It's going to take years of practice to grow into somebody who would be a capable blacksmith or somebody who is able to to develop this kind of sort like that. And discipleship functions in much the same way. It takes practice. It takes effort and energy. But maybe the difference is, too, is we have one uh, who is other, to use the biblical text in the description, that is living in and through us and begins to really shift our interior world. No, no, that's so good. I mean, I'm thinking Sue and I were watching a really great violinist last night. Um, and, you know, there's part of me, every time I watch somebody playing, a, you know, a great musical instrument, oh, I wish I could do that. And the answer is I could do that. It would just take me years to get to that point is exactly yeah. what you're saying, that we can't, we're not capable of just picking up a violin and playing it no matter how badly we want to play it. And we're not capable of just getting up. Uh, and living a Christ-like life in our own strength. I mean, it's years of practice cultivating that relationship with the Holy Spirit. I, I mean, I literally would like to declare a five-year moratorium uh, in the church that pastors will only preach from the gospel teachings of Jesus for uh, five years. Yeah. That Christians will only read the gospel teaching of Jesus for five years. That would get us through another election cycle. That's one reason I say <laughs> five years. But I'm thinking after four years of practicing, like the next election cycle would be totally different. That our our Facebook feeds, that our Twitter thing, our conversation with people would be totally different because our default mode would be to be, be an other-centered person first and a self-centered person second. Yeah. I think that's an incredible moratorium to think about, Gary, the idea that for five years we would just simply focus on the words of the gospel of the one that we claim to follow and serve and what that might mean for us as believers and, and just the different challenges around us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about Jesus's words on the cross and what kind of person he must have been that the word made flesh dwelling among us that was able to turn in the midst of the injustice he was experiencing and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's up next with Dr. Gary Stratton here on Mornings Without Carmen.
Man, Gary, Paul is full-service musical with you this morning. He is bringing all of the versions into play here. Oh, yeah. Gotta, we gotta we gotta work with our with our guests. Yeah, he has yeah. he has a gift of hospitality quite clearly <laughs> through the lens of music. Well, great great to hear your voice, have your wisdom again here on this Friday morning on Mornings Without Carmen and Gary. One of the things that's really compelling to me, and I don't know how to imagine the situation if I was standing there on Golgotha experiencing the horrors of the death of the crucifixion and having this crowd that had so recently been shouting Hosanna in the highest as, as Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, certainly in their own minds, to begin the dethroning of the Roman oppression and the Roman Empire that had put the Jews in, in this bondage and slavery. And so Hosanna to this King of Kings. And uh, just a short while later, now the crowds have turned on him. They are spitting him, uh, spitting upon him. They're mocking him. And, and what does Jesus say? Who's done literally nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong, but he has stayed silent. He has veiled his power. And he turns around and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And, and I don't know how you imagine that situation, Gary, but I, I don't see that Jesus was thinking, gosh, these people are driving me absolutely nuts. I can't stand them, but I know the Bible tells me I'm supposed to forgive them. So I guess I will do that. And, and sort of through gritted teeth, he decided to forgive. It seems to me, Gary, that uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and his great love was demonstrated in that. So maybe that forgiveness flowed from him in the midst of the injustice. I, that seems otherworldly on every level to me. You know, it, it doesn't. And yet, I mean, if we're taking this perspective that a Christ-like life is a cultivated life and not just something you can just automatically run out and do, yeah. um, that it takes a cultivative connection to the Holy Spirit and an, a connection to Jesus' teachings and meditating on them and seeking to put them into practice. I mean, I don't think Jesus told people, you know, told his disciples uh, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> I don't think he... Uh, he told us to forgive as you've forgiven. I don't think he told us those things unless they're things that he was practicing. They're mm. part of his life. Um, and of course, he had a lot of practice as he got closer to the cross. I mean, mm. just more and more and more opposition, more and more response. And the very heart of who he truly was is what some people would call his true self, you know, uh, comes out in those horrible, difficult times, uh, those moments of unimaginable uh, pressure. And in that moment of pressure, instead of responding with uh, hatred, with anger, at the injustice, which he could have, I and mean, he had the ability to just call 10,000 angels and you know, right. wipe them all out. <laughs> right. If I was there, I could forgive, but it's all I could do. You know, like I could be mad and snarling, but I wouldn't make any difference. But he could make a difference, uh, and yet he didn't because of a lifestyle that had been cultivated. So the fact that we could um, give, give in to anger like that uh, when— he doesn't even take his tell his followers to pick up uh, their swords to defend him when it's as you said a clearly unlawful conviction and execution. Um, I, it's just mind-boggling that we're ready to take up swords, you know, with our neighbor uh, over a garden rake or different things, uh, <laughs> or or over politics. I think because uh, they differ from us when it's you know, maybe doesn't have quite as much to do with the kingdom of God as we think. Yeah, it, it really is an intriguing invitation about how Jesus viewed the world around him. I, it calls to mind a quote from uh, the a theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, who I've appreciated over the years, that he at one point said that the cross is both for the oppressor and for the oppressed, to bring all humankind into a free and sympathetic humanity with one another. And and I just think that it, it's very understandable, is it not, that when we're being treated unfairly in any given situation, 
situation, whether it's in an argument with a loved one, whether it's on the job, you, you name it. There's all kinds of ways in which you're treated unfairly. But in the, in the unfair treatment, that doesn't then demand a, a response that has to be anger. We, we, we can be responding in a different kind of way. And that, to me, is, is truly otherworldly in the sense that we could respond to unfair treatment while still desiring the wholeness of the person who is treating us unfair. It doesn't mean we're there to get run over. It doesn't mean we're there to not speak up about injustice or any of those things. I'm not suggesting that. But the heart underneath it and the heart behind it still desires the wholeness of the very oppressors that are bringing the injustice in the midst of it. That, to me, is where the kingdom carves out an entirely different kind of space. No, I agree. And it's, I mean, if we don't believe that it's possible to live this life. And I've seen Christians like teach, well, Jesus didn't really expect us to live the Sermon on the Mount. That was only if uh, the kingdom had actually come and he'd been able to become king. That, Like, that's just ridiculous. I mean, uh, he wants us to live this kind of life. He's given us the the ability to do it, but somehow we just, we just find it a lot easier to, to camp other places than in the Gospels, than in the teachings of Jesus. Uh, to defend our worldview uh, or defend our view of our worldview, whether uh, it's uh, <laughs> Fox or MSNBC. Uh, and that becomes, you know, the, the center of everything. And I think he wants us uh, to be be living a life of connection to him. Mm, that's well said. Gary, we just have a minute left or so, but uh, maybe some suggestions. Turn out the, uh, tune out the voices that disciple around us for a period of time, as you said, and, and try to get our mind and our heart around the words of Jesus and really sit in those for probably a pretty extended period of time for a while to be shaped in his image in some ways our world really needs. Yeah, you know, one suggestion, it's a really simple one. Um, it's, you know, on mo- almost every iPhone and almost and most Android phones, you've got a, an app you either is already there or that you can put active. It just tells you how long you're doing things. And to take a chess clock approach to things and just say, uh, my goal in each day is I'm going to spend more time uh, cultivating my relationship with the Lord, reading scripture, uh, meditating on it, praying, being involved in service than I am in media and or social media. Mm. Um, man, when you start that process, it is so sober because I think, well, I don't have time to get closer to God. And you're like, like oh, yes, I do. I've got, <laughs> I've got a lot of time to get closer to a lot of other things. So um, just something as simple as that, just starting to monitor our where our time and energy and thought life is going yeah. uh, to is just huge. It really is. And gee, Gary, I don't feel convicted at all by that this morning. Thanks so, <laughs> thanks so much for that. Now, great to hear your voice. Great to hear your wisdom. we got to leave it there for this morning. But just appreciate all of the ways in which you interact with God's kingdom and lead others in all of that. So have a great rest of the Friday, Gary. Oh, thanks to you too, Peter. Come we'll on. take a short break and come back and wrap up this hour of the show and preview the second hour of Mornings Without Carmen here on the 29th of January. I always appreciate Gary's accessible wisdom, uh, practical ways in which we can walk out our life as apprentices, our life as disciples being catechized by other voices in our lives and somewhat convicted, maybe some of you are as well, in terms of what I spend my time reading when I have a little time to myself to read on the phone. Uh, I I would just bet that it's weighted more towards news and other things versus uh, walking out life with Jesus. So we'll leave it there and we'll come back in a couple minutes and uh, go through hour two of Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.